Today on the Matt Wall Show, major backlash against a country song that allegedly promotes, quote, racism and violence. But since when does the media or the left care about violence and music? We'll talk about that. Also, Louisiana Republicans override the governor's veto to pass a ban on child mutilation. CNBC lists the worst states in the country. Big surprise, they're all red states. Can you believe it? Charles Barkley goes on an unhinged rant against people who don't drink Bud Light. And the Wall Street Journal reports on the rapidly rising trend of divorce parties. All of that and more today on the Matt Wall Show. You know, as we get deeper into the summer, uh, it's all the more important to think about ways that you can maintain a healthy lifestyle, even if you're very busy. And one of the ways that you can do that is by uh, eating lots of fruits and vegetables. They're a great way to make sure that you're getting essential nutritional ingredients every single day. Through Balance of Nature's advanced cold vacuum process, the vitamins, minerals, and phytonutrients of the fruits and vegetables are preserved so you can get that vital nutrition in each capsule. Balance of Nature is a whole food supplement with no additives, no fillers, no extracts, no synthetics, no pesticides, or added sugar. Pure fruits and vegetables are the only things they put in their capsule. It's as simple as that. Balance of Nature sent a bunch of their products down to the studio for my team to try. We all love them. When you're disciplined enough to take care of your health, you'll reap all the kinds of uh, benefits that are available to you. Your body will thank you for it. For a limited time this summer, when you become a preferred customer at Balance of Nature, they're throwing in a free fruits and vegetables travel set and giving an additional $25 off your first order. Go to balanceofnature.com. Use promo code Walsh for a free travel set and $25 off your first order as a preferred customer. That's balanceofnature.com, promo code Walsh. As you've probably noticed, uh, the music industry is a degenerate wasteland full of semi-literate drug addicts who spew vulgarity and ugliness all over the culture like a never-ending stream of projectile vomit. For just one example, of course, one of the most talked about songs of the summer called Pound Town has the uh, performer Sexy Red graphically describing her various orifices in the very first lines of the song, and it's all downhill from there. This is what passes for music in modern times, and if you criticize any of it, if you object to any of this filth, no matter how aggressively disgusting, stupid, and morally deranged it is, you are dismissed as a prude. If you do not want these morons and perverts to dump this audible sewage directly into your child's eardrums, then you're nothing more than a fainting church lady clutching your pearls. The media will join in this course, uh, of course, insisting that the music you object to is somehow actually artistically brilliant. Sure, the average hit song these days sounds like it was written in crayon on a piece of toilet paper by an emotionally disturbed adult who still wears Velcro shoes, but you're supposed to love all of it and never criticize any of it or else you are nothing more than a puritanical scold. But there are exceptions to this rule. Every once in a while, the very people who love and defend the most heinous and disgusting music imaginable will encounter a song that they deem offensive. They go from calling everyone else pearl clutchers to clutching their own pearls. Suddenly, they're the ones fanning themselves and fainting. These are always interesting and informative moments, and, and we happen to be experiencing one right now. The song that has provoked the wrath of the sorts of people who regularly celebrate the most demented and hideous and artistically irredeemable music ever made is from country star Jason Aldean, and it's called Try That in a Small Town. This song, we are informed, is deeply offensive. I mean, it's probably the most offensive song that's been made this century based on the reaction. So prepare yourself. Here's a quick sample. Sucker punch somebody on a sidewalk Carjacking old lady at a red light Pull a gun on the owner of a liquor store You think it's cool, act a fool if you like Cuss out a cop 
Okay, so just to review, Aldine is directing this at those who sucker punch somebody on a sidewalk, carjack an old lady at a red light, or pull a gun on the owner of a liquor store. And warning that if they behave this way in a small town, uh, they won't make it down the road because, as he says, folks in small towns take care of their own and don't put up with that kind of nonsense. Now, as someone who lived in a town of fewer than 3,000 before moving to Nashville, I can confirm that this is basically how it works in my experience in small towns. Um, I, you know, where, where I lived, I never heard of anyone getting carjacked or sucker punched on a sidewalk. Violent crime was virtually non-existent. And this was all not in spite of, but at least partially because everybody legally owned multiple firearms. It was certainly not uncommon to hear gunshots coming from your neighbor's property, not because any crime was being committed, but because they were, you know, out back doing target practice or in the woods hunting for deer. These were not the sorts of people you wanted to carjack or randomly assault on the sidewalk, which is why that sort of thing rarely, if ever, happened. That's what Jason Aldean was trying to convey in his song, along with conveying that there's a, a you know, a sense of community uh, that you can find in a lot of these towns that oftentimes you don't find in the bigger cities, which is also, in my experience, true. But of course, somehow this is all, for some reason, offensive to many people on the left. As mentioned, there has been a, a deafening cry of outrage against this song. Many tweets like this from a woman named Reverend Dr. Jackie Lewis, who you know is insufferable based on the fact that she front loads her name with multiple titles. But she posted, there's no non-racialized way to write a song about lynching. When Jason Aldean sings, sings, see how far you make it down the road, it invokes a very particular legacy. Another viral post agrees, Nobody could be shocked by Jason Aldean writing a racist as F song. Him and his skanky wife hang out with Trump and dress their kids in anti-Biden clothing. The song is as as he is. Many more posts, you know, where these came from, all of a similar tone and theme. The Daily Beast slammed Aldean with this headline, Jason Aldean catches heat for racist pro-gun lyrics, a modern lynching song. The outlet claims that the song is not just a statement of Aldean's personal politics, but a disturbing call to arms, quote unquote. They accuse the singer of, quote, suggesting that he's gearing up for a race war. And by the way, their evidence for that accusation, that he mentions a race war in the song, is uh, they, they quote this lyric from the song. Got a gun that my granddad gave me. They say one day they're going to round up. So the Daily Beast sees a race war in that line somehow. I don't see it, but I guess this is like the leftist version of finding Jesus in a piece of toast. I don't know. Many other headlines echoed this sentiment. Perez Hilton published his own screaming headline, Music fans nationwide condemn Jason Aldean's violent new song and awful music video. Big yikes. CNN agreed, noting that the lyrics allegedly evoke lynching and gun violence. Other artists have denounced uh, Jason Aldean. Last night, Sheryl Crow posted this, I'm from a small town. Even people in small towns are sick of violence. There's nothing small town or American about promoting violence. You should know that better than, than anyone having survived a mass shooting. This is not American or small town-like. It's just lame. CMT, the country music television channel, joined the dogpile by abruptly pulling the music video from their rotation. They didn't give, uh, at this point, an official reason for that decision, but the reason is clear. The backlash eventually prompted a lengthy response from Aldine, who released a statement yesterday with this clarification, quote, 
Try that in a small town, for me, refers to the feeling of community that I had growing up, where we took care of our neighbors, regardless of differences of background or belief, because they were our neighbors, and that was, ab that was above any differences. My political views have never been something I've hidden from, and I know that a lot of us in this, country, in, in this country don't agree on how we get back to a sense of normalcy, where we go at least a day without a headline that keeps us up at night. But the desire for it, that's what this song is about. Now, he also stipulates that this song is not about race and does not promote lynching. These stipulations are totally unnecessary because everybody already knows that the accusations are completely absurd and meritless. The people making the accusations especially know it. In fact, if you immediately assume that lyrics condemning carjackings and random assaults are racist and anti-black, then you have revealed something about your own feelings and assumptions about black people. Okay, if somebody says, I, you know, I, I, hate to, I hate carjackings, and you say, well, what do you got against black people? You've admitted something about yourself. It's like if I said, man, you know, I can't stand the lazy, smelly weirdos. And you said, hey, what's wrong with Mexicans? Somebody in the exchange has made an unflattering statement about Mexicans, and it wasn't me. Something similar is going on with this reaction to try that in a small town. Now, with all that said, I must admit that there are, there are some gratuitously violent lyrics in Jason Aldean's song. Okay, we didn't play them for you. It's a little bit offensive, but... Uh, I mean, listen to these lines from the song. I got some homies with pounds, but we ain't that cool. So I'm thinking about robbery. Got to play this shit smart. It's going to hurt their heart when they find out that it was me that was robbing them. Got to catch him when it's dark. Going to run up on his car. That same one we always be riding in. Ran up to his car, made him grab the wheel. I grabbed his neck like I'm Iron Man. Just do what I say. No, you don't want to die in here. If you reach or you tweak, I'm a fire in here. Whew, wow. Really violent stuff from Jason Aldean. Oh, wait, no, that's not Jason Aldean. I'm sorry. That's, that's not Jason Aldean at all. That's one of the top rap songs on YouTube right now from a rapper named King Vaughn. This is actually a posthumous song from the artist who was uh, tragically killed in a gang shooting a few years ago. Before his death, he had been implicated in, in up to 10 different homicides, okay? He's a rap artist with hit songs, including one right now after he died, implicated in 10 homicides, so he was potentially an actual serial killer with a music video that has 10 times the number of views as Jason Aldean's song right now. But Jason Aldean is the problem somehow. He's the one we're worried about. King Vaughn is not a unique case. The rap genre is obviously full of actual violent criminals who openly glorify murder, drug abuse, rape, robbery, all manner of violent crime. They directly call on their fans to engage in this behavior, and their fans respond accordingly. They have particular influence over fatherless inner-city kids who they coax down a road of lawlessness and self-destruction. This is what you get in rap music, which is why every year or sometimes multiple times a year, rappers end up lying in the gutter, bleeding out as the lifestyle they promote comes back to destroy them. Meanwhile, we're still waiting, as far as I know, for the first country artist to be killed in a gang shooting. It doesn't happen because country artists aren't the problem. The problem lies with the genres of music that had an automatic and universal pass from the very people pretending to be scandalized by Jason Aldean. A few months ago, Billboard released its list of the top rap songs of 2022. Number one on the list is uh, uh, Glo Glorilla and Hit Kid FNF. Part of that is the song title. Part of it is the name of the rapper. I don't know which is which, but this song also made the best songs overall of 2022 list for the Los Angeles Times NPR, Pitchfork, 
uh, Time magazine. It's one of the hits of the previous summer, went massively viral on YouTube and TikTok. Here's a brief sampling of this artistic masterpiece. Listen. We hopping out that red light, twerking on them headlights. She say she can't come outside today, that means she's scared, right? I be put up in the winter, in the summer, pop out here at night. Bragging on that top, he better hold his head tight. Anyways, life's great, still good. Still eating cake, wishing that a Got my foot up on their necks as a Okay, uh, one of the best songs of the entire year right there, according to NPR in the LA Times. Now, you might argue that the violent themes uh, in that song are less of a concern because the lyrics are so illiterate, stupid, and unintelligible, it's hard to tell exactly what she's even trying to say. That's perhaps the one benefit of having a music scene overrun by mentally disabled idiots with sub-75 IQs. Be that as it may... Can anyone seriously argue that try that in a small town is more objectionable than the garbage you just heard? Or any of the garbage just like it? Of course, the crucial difference between try that in a small town and a song like Robberies or FNF, whatever it's called, aside from the fact that Jason Aldean can read above a third grade level, is that in the former case, if the artist is advocating for any form of violence, he's advocating for violence in self-defense or in defense of the innocent against predators. But in your typical rap song, violence is advocated against anybody and everybody, not for the sake of defending yourself or your community, but for the sake of profit or settling a score with someone from a rival gang or proving how tough you are, etc. You know, if a rap song mentions carjacking people at red lights or pulling guns on liquor store owners, it'll be because the artist is bragging about doing those things. Aldine condemns those crimes. Rap artists explicitly promote and glorify them. A total indifference to human life, callous, violent amorality. That is what you hear promoted in the kinds of songs that will never, ever, under any circumstance, be criticized by The Daily Beast or CNN or Sheryl Crow or any of those people. So, why does Al Dean get held to a, a standard that is never applied to the most popular rap artists in the world? Well, because Al Dean is white, number one, and conservative, and he sings country music. I mean, that's the whole reason. It's as simple as that. They accuse him of racism, but it's their own racism. Their anti-whiteism. Actually, several forms of racism at play here, given all the assumptions that they're making, again, about, about black people by taking his lyrics as racial. That's what's driving this. And their political bigotries as well. That's what's behind all of it. And we all know it. Now let's get to our five headlines. As you probably know, if you watch the show, I'm constantly traveling, uh, being on the road as much as I am. I don't sleep well at night. I know it's because the hotel sheets that I'm at or anywhere I'm staying, they're not as comfortable as my cozy earth sheets at home. Cozy earth sheets are the softest, most luxurious sheets that I have ever owned. My wife and I have their white bamboo sheets on our bed. These uh, bamboo sheets are temperature regulating, helping us sleep like sweet babies, even on hot nights, uh, and even when we have uh, babies of our own that are screaming and crying all night. So maybe without that, we would sleep well. Cozy Earth offers an array of sizes and colors to match your unique style and preferences. Their sheets are made to withstand the test of time. My Cozy Earth sheets get softer and softer with every wash. Don't just take my word for it. They have over 5,000 happy customer reviews on their site. So what are you waiting for? Cozy Earth offers a 100-night guarantee, so there's no harm in trying it. Invest today in a good night's sleep. Right now, you'll save 40% off your next purchase with promo code Walsh at CozyEarth.com. 
That's promo code Walsh at CozyEarth.com. We begin with uh, good news. The Daily Wire reports in a rare move, the Louisiana legislature has vetoed, or rather voted to override Democrat Governor John Bell Edwards' veto of a bill that shields children from life-altering sex change procedures. The bill, called Stop Harming Our Kids Act, um, will prevent doctors from performing transgender procedures like double mastectomies on girls who identify as boys, administering puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones to children. Quote, um, today was a huge win for the children of Louisiana. I'm proud of my colleagues in the state legislature for standing up to protect the children of our great state. We made it clear today that our children are worth fighting for. Uh, This great victory would not have been possible without the prayers and support of parents, grandparents, pastors, and grassroots organizations from around the state who rose up and declared with one voice that no one in Louisiana has the right to harm a child. That is a quote from Louisiana Republican Representative Gabe Furman, the sponsor of the legislation. The House voted 75 to 23 to override the veto with 69 Republicans being joined by six Democrats. In the Senate, lawmakers voted 28 to 11 to adopt the measure. Um, so this is, and I was trying to skip ahead for this. This is, uh, only, I believe the third, uh, successful vote to override a veto in the state since 1974. So it doesn't happen very often, but it happened here. And this is not even the first time that a governor's veto has been overridden for the sake of passing a child mutilation ban into law in this country recently. Uh, the same thing happened, if you recall, in 2021 in Arkansas. So what we see is that not only have we, uh, when I say we, I mean uh, those of us in the, uh, on Team Sanity, you know, those, uh, those of us in the anti-gender ideology camp, not only have we mobilized elected Republicans to take this issue seriously, but we have, we have mobilized overwhelming support. Okay, we mobilized them to take the kinds of actions that you very rarely see. The pendulum is swinging back in our direction. It has swung. I mean, that has already happened. There are, you know, and there are conservatives who still don't want to admit this. There are conservatives who still, for whatever reason, they don't like it when I say this, that we're winning because I, I think they're terrified of win, winning. Um, or, or, you know, this is, I think for some conservatives, especially conservative commentators who don't like to talk about the fact that we're winning on this issue, I think for some of them, uh, this is not their issue. They haven't done much on it. And so they don't want anyone else to get credit for anything. And so that's why they don't want, but Whatever their motivation, we are winning on this issue. I didn't say it's over. I didn't say we're done. Okay, I didn't say that we can just, hey, well, that's it. Let's go home, folks. I didn't say that. But we are winning. We just simply are. And it's, it's why I emphasize this, because it's so important to acknowledge it. Not just because it's like a, it's a, it's a healthy practice to acknowledge your wins and to not always be uh, down and doom and gloom and everything is terrible. I mean, we do plenty of that on this show, especially. But it's it's a it's a healthy thing to recognize and be grateful for the victories. But so there's that. But then, but then even from a strategic perspective too, strategically, it's important to acknowledge victories because other people. You know, people who are not in the in in the mix, people who are not haven't quite chosen a side, the people that are sort of like floating in the middle, uh, they want to be on the winning side. So when you're winning and you say we're winning on this issue, uh, that that is persuasive to those who have not joined yet. They want to join the winners. One of the problems, one of the, one of the strategic problems with conservatives always talking about how we're losing, we're losing, everything's terrible. And again, I know I'm, I know I do that plenty. But one of the one of the issues with that is that is that it's not just like oh you're being pessimistic. It's well when you say that, you're not going to convince anyone to join, right? If we want if we want to actually win, 
uh, that we need to we need to recruit people to our fight. And it's hard to do that when you say, hey, come here and lose with us. We just lose everything. Hey, you got you want to lose? Come on over. Um, it's not a successful recruitment method. Which doesn't mean that we should be delusional or we should be dishonest or we should claim that everything's going great and we're winning every fight. No, I mean, realism is important. But what I'm saying is, even from a strategic perspective, this is all the more reason to celebrate the victories and say, hey, we are winning. This is the winning side. Come and join us. Okay, if you're late to the party, that's, that's fine. I wish you were here earlier, but we're not going to dwell on that. Better late, better late than never. Okay, now is better than never. Now, the left will take solace in various polls or whatever that supposedly show that there's still a majority support in this country for, quote unquote, gender affirming care for minors. And those there are plenty of polls that do say that. But um, what they don't tell you is that support is falling drastically quickly. The momentum is on our side. The other thing they don't mention is that the support is based almost entirely on ignorance. People support gender affirming care because they don't know what it means. It sounds good. If you have no idea and you're totally oblivious and you, you have no frame of reference at all, and I know for a lot of us who are more plugged in, it's like hard to believe that there could still be anyone who doesn't understand what something like gender-affirming care means, but those people do exist. They definitely exist. There are a lot of them. And if you're in that camp and you hear gender-affirming care, you don't know anything, you don't know what it means, you say, oh, okay, well, that sounds good. Yeah, affirming, right? Uh, yeah, we should affirm. Affirm sounds good. Sounds like the kind of thing you should support, affirming. Um. But that's that's not what it actually means. It means gender. It means you know gender affirming care, as we know, means gender rejection care. It means rejecting who you actually are in a violent way that will cause permanent physical damage to your body, your mind, and your soul. So we have to explain that. That the 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 other advantage that we have we have we have the truth on our side, and uh, and that's a big deal. Um, which because it means that if people can simply be made aware of what gender-affirming care means and what all this stuff is, then they will quickly switch sides. We don't even have to do that much convincing. For so many people, all the convince it's almost like you don't need to even make an argument for many people. All you have to do is just show them, this is what, here's what these words mean that you're hearing. Here's what's happening to kids. This is how widespread the problem is. And present it to them. And most people, when they hear that, will say, well, that's terrible. No, I don't support that. They're doing that to kids? No. That's how most people react. So we don't need to constantly keep things covered in euphemisms. We, we, have, we do the exact opposite. Uh, it's the other side that has to keep up with the lie constantly. All right. Uh, this is from the New York Post. NBA legend Charles Barkley called beer drinkers who boycott Bud Light over its tie-up with trans influencer Dylan Mulvaney rednecks and assholes during a profanity-laced tirade in defense of the beleaguered Anheuser-Busch brand. Uh, he was at a, some kind of bar in California and, and where he was playing a celebrity golf tournament. And we have the clip. Let's play it. I want y'all to drink this beer. I want y'all to drink this beer. I got three cases of Bud Light. Yeah. If you have a problem with that, f you. If you don't drink Bud Light, f you. Um, 
And that's Charles Barkley for you. He's another one of these guys who gets credit even from people on the right all the time for being um, supposedly reasonable, right? Every once every three and a half years, he'll say something on an NBA pregame show that's like vaguely reasonable and maybe moderately insightful on some kind of issue. And it'll get passed around like crazy, especially by people on the right. It's like, Charles Barkley is one of the good ones. Well, this, this is what you get from one of the good ones. This is what you get from the reasonable guy. Who, he is a leftist. Very clearly, that's who he is. This, this is the reasonable leftist for you. One of the good ones. You're a redneck a-hole if you don't drink Bud Lights. Okay, if you don't think that Bud Light should endorse a man dressed like a woman, you are a redneck and F you. That's the reasonable Charles Barkley. And the really sad thing is that by the standards of the left, he's, he is still one of the reasonable ones by their standards. But uh, that's not saying much, so we should probably hold our applause with this guy. The next time he says, you know, it, it'll happen again soon. Uh, people are upset about this, but it'll happen again soon. He'll be on uh, TNT or whatever, TBS, whatever it is, and he'll say something, you know, um, in six months from now, and, and you'll have a lot of conservatives that were upset about this, pa- passing the video around, and so, oh, you know, so what a good guy he is. Guaranteed to happen. Uh, CNBC has a list of what it says are the 10 worst states to live and work in. And this is a list that they update every year. And uh, now we have the 2023 edition. So if you were thinking about moving somewhere or, you know, a little bit up in the air, you didn't know where you wanted to live and you're waiting for guidance from CNBC. Okay. Maybe you were talking with, uh, maybe you were were talking with your family about moving and you said, well, we're not gonna make any decisions. Okay. Let's wait till CNBC tells us what to do. So if you're in that camp, then this is a big moment for you. They finally released the, the, uh, the list. They say they, co- they compile the list by the numbers, quote unquote. It's a strictly objective determination based on the data, they say. Now, just to skip ahead to the twist ending, the list of the worst states to live in begins at number 10 with Florida, one of the most prosperous states in the country. It's one of the highest rates of people migrating to it. And it ends with... Um, as the worst state of all, number one on the list, is Texas. Again, a prosperous state where hundreds of thousands of people move to every year. My own state, Tennessee, also makes the list, which is news to uh, all the new transplants who show up here every single day. So it seems like all of the worst states are exactly the states where most where, where the most people want to live. It's like the, peop- the, the places where people most want to live are all the worst places, we're being told by CNBC. And another big coincidence here is that um, every state on the list is a red state. I mean, who could have seen that coming? They also have the list of the, of the, uh, of the best states to live. And uh, I believe every state, or certainly the vast majority, are blue states. So big, big surprise there. But how do they, so how do they determine this? You know, uh, how do they come to this determination? How could they say that Florida, really Florida is one of the, is one of the worst states to live in the country? Texas is the worst. There's not a worse place to live than Texas. Well, let's find out how they came up with this uh, ranking. This is from the article says, each year as part of our overall assessment of state business climates, CNBC's America's Top States for Business study considers how welcoming each state is to workers and their families. Life, health, and inclusion is one of the study's 10 categories of competitiveness. And this year, with a nationwide worker shortage so severe, the category is taking on increased importance in our methodology. 
We consider multiple quality of life factors, including crime rates, environmental quality, and health care. We also look at the quality and availability of child care, which is one of the most important factors in getting parents back into the workforce. Um, casting the widest possible net for workers means not turning anyone away. So we consider inclusiveness in state laws by measuring protections against discrimination as well as voting rights. And with surveys showing a substantial percentage of women considering abortion restrictions when making a choice of where to live in the wake of the Supreme Court uh, overturning Roe v. Wade, reproductive rights are part of this year's equation as well. Okay, so that's how they came up with it. It's just, it's, that's what the list is. The, here are the most conservative states. Also, you shouldn't live there because we don't like, we don't agree with conservatism. Um, and so there's not, not a lot to, to say about it. This is just a farcical partisan list, um, except that, you know, because of course that's not what's, that's not what CNBC is directly saying. Okay, they're, they're, they are not directly saying, here are the most conservative states. We hate them because we're liberal. They are trying to frame this as, well, because they're conservative, that means it's a low quality of life and nobody would want to live there. And it just shows how the left and the, you know, the media specifically, they have really no concept of what normal people want out of life, like what our priorities are in life. They have no concept of that. Because to them, this, there's nothing farcical about this. They really think that when most, when your average family is deciding where to move, that they're going to take into account things like inclusiveness. Like I, I can, I'm willing to bet, I mean, there's no way to, there's no way to, to verify this. I'm willing to bet that this is, that it has never happened. Okay, this conversation has never happened where you've got a nor, just a normal working class family sitting around the dinner table, and they, they, they got to move. You know, they know, they know they want to move from where they are. They want to go somewhere else. And they're talking about where they could go next. You know, husband and wife, you got a spouse having this conversation. Now, this part has happened many, many times. I've been in these conversations with my wife on multiple occasions as we've moved around. Um, but here's the part that's never happened. Where husband or wife throws out a state, and then, someone, and, then, and then the other one responds, how inclusive is it? Where does it rank on the inclusivity scale? Oh, no, no, oh, no, honey, we can't move there. It's not inclusive enough. Well, yeah, I mean, look, the crime rate is low. There are job opportunities. There are great schools for the kids. Uh, you know, there's, it's, it's, it's affordable. Uh, you know, the living expenses are down from where it is here. Here's all the... Yeah, but it's not inclusive enough. The inclusivity. Think of the DEI. The DEI is not there. That conversation has just never happened. It, it just does not happen. And uh, the media doesn't know this because they don't understand anything about human beings, basically. This is funny, though, to read. We're not going to go through the whole list. But, let, but Florida, I said, came in number 10 on the list. So it's the 10th worst. Not the worst, but it's number 10. Here's what they say about Florida. Um, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis hopes to ride his war on woke to the White House, but it's not winning a state points for quality of life. Supporters of the state's Stop Woke Act, which DeSantis signed into law in 2022, say it protects employees from diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives that DeSantis says are toxic. But many companies consider DEI an economic imperative, and courts have struck down parts of the law. Um, the reason, no, no company thinks that DEI is an economic imperative. Many of them do it. Many of them engage in this. It's a cultural imperative for them. It's a societal imperative. Um, it may, it may in, a, in an indirect way, be an economic imperative uh, because they're worried about the ESG score, they're worried about the co corporate equality index. 
Okay, but this is not direct. It's not like if you if you uh, put DEI as your top concern that it's going to really help your business directly. Um, no, it's more that there are going to be financial penalties. There are artificial constructs put in place, penalties that are going to be put in place if you don't do this. So maybe in that sense, it's an economic imperative, but it's all completely artificial. Uh, the recent Supreme Court decision on affirmative action in higher education, however, is expected to lead to new legal challenges related to DEI programs in the corporate world. Florida is one of the most difficult states to vote in. Wait, let me read that again. Florida is one of the most difficult states to vote in, according to researchers at Northern Illinois uh, University. And so that's really why it's number 10 on the list. And so that, and then they, they, uh, they give it a, a life, health, and inclusion score of 129 out of 350, which is a D grade. It's only a D. It's passing grade, though. You know, in most schools, I think that counts as passing. Um, here are their strengths. Air quality, child care, worker protections. Sounds pretty good. You know, you got good child care. You can breathe the air. Sounds like necessities. Weaknesses, inclusiveness, and reproductive rights. Okay, so the weaknesses are all the things that no one gives a damn about. And then uh, the strengths are the things people actually care about. Got it. I am curious, though. Florida, and I've never lived in Florida, so therefore I've never voted in Florida. But I would like to know, uh, Florida is one of the most difficult states to vote in. How is it difficult, exactly? Do you have to, is there like... You have to scale a rock climbing wall to get up to the poles. Are the poles perched at the top of some sort of uh, precipice? You have to climb up to it. Is that how it works? Or do they have, you know, is it like a ballot on a on a on a kind of a a, a dartboard, and you have to stand ten yards back and throw your dart and hope that it hits the candidate you want? I mean, that, that would count as difficult to vote. But also make voting a lot more fun. Um, is that how it works in Florida? I, mean, I don't know. Maybe someone could fill me in if those are if those are the policies. But I'm pretty sure it doesn't work that way. And uh, if you want to vote, you could just go and vote like anybody, and it's incredibly easy. Pretty sure about that. But I, you know, I stand to be corrected. I want to move to this. I've had this clip for a couple days I wanted to play. Vivek uh, Ramaswamy. We had a clip from him earlier this week. And here's a different clip of him that's been going viral on uh, social media this week. This is, this is Vivek Ramaswamy on The Breakfast Club radio show. And he is responding to the claim that the U.S. is a white supremacist country, as you have so often heard. Here's how he handles that. I can absolutely blame white supremacy. 100%. Really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> See? Uh, say more, and then I'll respond to that. I mean, just look at the history of the country. Like, it's just really just that simple for me. The, 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 the country has never fulfilled its promises of freedom, liberty, and justice for all. It's always been freedom, liberty, and justice for some. And usually that some is uh, white people. So here's what I would say in response to that. That is obviously true that the nation has fallen short mm-hmm. of our promise since our founding. But walk through some obvious facts about America. We're not founded on an ethnicity or a monarch or a food or even a religion. We're founded on a set of ideals that brought a group of people together in 1776. And we live by those ideals. At least we aspire to those ideals today. A nation that aspires to ideals that's not made up of gods, but made up of human beings will always fall short of those ideals. So I think our worst hypocrisies as a country, and we have many of them, Mm -hmm. our worst hypocrisies are our best evidence that we have ideals at all. 
You take a look at other countries. Nobody ever calls the Chinese Communist Party a hypocrite or China a hypocrite or Iran a hypocrite. Why is that? Because to be a hypocrite, <laughs> you at least had to have ideals in the first place. But a lot and of and so we're imperfect, but we are about the pursuit of a more perfect union, the pursuit of happiness. America is about the pursuit. And so I, I think are the trashing ourselves, I, I think we oh, are actually. I say that is because, you know, we, we never were included in those ideals originally. Like, originally. Yeah. But never and not originally are two different things. Mm -hmm. Originally, that's true. Mm -hmm. Over 250 years of progress, if you had somebody who was in 1870 looking at the world we live in today, if you had somebody in 1960 who was looking at the world we live in today as it relates to race in America, we would be darn close to what they would have thought of as the promised land. So I think we have to recognize that America is about that pursuit. We're a lot further along than we were 250 years ago. We, and here's the other thing, too. we got to set our expectations. We will always fall short of our ideals. By definition, if there are human beings and not gods living in a nation that aspires to ideals, we are fallen. Man is fallen. So that's, that's uh, I mean, well said. I thought he handled that really well. He handled it better than, uh, than most Republican candidates would, uh, given the, same, given the same, uh, same line of questioning. You know, it is. It's. It will never not be funny to hear this kind of thing coming from uh, coming from someone that that is. Who's that? I think that's Charlemagne. Charlemagne the God, as he calls himself. Breakfast Club. He, he say, "Well, we, it's it's only freedom and liberty for some." To me, as a black man, I don't have freedom and liberty. Really, Charlemagne. What what freedom do you not have? You're sitting on a talk show, successful talk show with lots of listeners, just saying whatever you want every day. You're getting paid lots of money. I think his net worth is like $10 million. So he's a millionaire. Get a pay, gets paid to sit and, and, and talk. Nothing wrong with getting paid to sit, sit and talk. At least I'm not one to criticize you for that. But what freedom don't you have? Just name it. What is the freedom you don't have? What is the freedom that I have that you don't? Can you name one? Just name one. That's it. Like an actual freedom, an actual legal right. Maybe that's a better way of putting it. What is a legal right that I have, Charlemagne, that you do not? Can you name one? You can't. And you know that you can't. Okay, so stop with the nonsense. That, that would be one way of handling it. I think Vivek's way of handling it is probably a little bit more, um, you know, he's going with the the, uh, the wind more flies with honey sort of approach, which is not, not normally my approach, but which is fine. Uh, but his, his point is also good. Vivek's point is also good that, that you know, yes, if you are, if, if we're talking about what was going on 200 years ago, but here's the thing about time. It's like time moves forward and things change. And that's not, that's not some sort of uh, easy out or rationalization Okay, that's not punting on the on the issue. It's just that's the answer to a lot of this. Time changes. Times have changed. That really is the answer. It's not 200 years ago anymore. It will never be 200 years ago. But time doesn't move in that direction. Um, and it's also true that if you go back, just as a just as a as an academic note here, which 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 I think is important to note still. Yeah, if you go back 200 years ago, you're going to find that uh, in this country there was. You know, not racial equality, really hardly any concept of it. You would also find the same thing in literally every other country on earth 200 years ago. Um, it's, a, it's a situation you still find in many countries today. 
mostly non-Western countries, where the just like racial equality doesn't even exist as a concept. But yeah, you go back 200 years and that's going to be the case. But it's not then anymore. And at a certain point, um, we have to be able to move on. And if you think that, well, we still haven't, uh, it's still not good enough. Well, then you have to be able to answer, number one, what is the, what is the legal right that, that I have as a white man that you do not have? Um, and then you also have to be able to answer this, which is, okay, if, it's, if we're not there yet, if we don't have racial equality yet, when will we be there? What do you need to see that would let you know that things have gotten better? Or that we've, that we've arrived and we actually have legal racial equality in the country. What do you need to see? Um, that's another question that they'll never answer. Because, because they know that it doesn't matter what happens. Like there's no objective, there's not any kind of objective statement that they're making. We could literally elect a black man president to run the country for eight years. Elect him twice. Makes no difference. Because all of this stuff, as I've uh, often said, all this stuff, the systemic racism, it is an unfalsifiable theory. It is not grounded in facts. And so there is no fact that can, um, that can dissuade the people who say this. Let's get to the comment section. Who makes a Twitter mob fly off the handle with rage? Who's to blame? It's a sweet baby gang. Grand Canyon University is an affordable private Christian university located in beautiful Phoenix, Arizona, praised for its culture of community, giving an impact. Grand Canyon University integrates the free market system into everything they do, welcoming Christian worldview perspectives into over 320 academic programs with more than 260 of those programs online. Grand Canyon University's online programs are designed to make earning your degree easy and accessible no matter your age or stage in life. So why wait? If you're ready to take your education to the next level, find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu. That's gcu.edu. Before we get into the comments, uh, I got to deal with this. Yesterday on the show, I read a comment from a traitorous member of the SBG, a Judas, who said that in my absence, uh, he almost left the SBG and joined Michael Knowles' off-brand cult called uh, the Creme Brulee or whatever it is. And I pointed out that, first of all, we say SBG for life, which means, and, and it means something, all right? It means you can never leave. You're not allowed to. Second, I'm tired of these other Daily Wire hosts trying to steal my thunder, steal my, steal my gig, and start their own cults, okay? Um, well, Knowles apparently responded on his show today, and I, I haven't even really listened to this, but, but let's play. We don't need the part of him playing my clip. Can we just play him responding to that? We have that. I don't disagree with him in principle. I don't disagree in principle. I, I remember for months and months, people would say, Michael, you need a name for us. We want a name to, to go by. And they, I, I don't mean to mock anybody's suggestions, but the suggestions, they were, I, I totally agree with Walsh. They were too on the nose. They were too intentional. I said, you can't, it's like giving yourself a nickname. You can't do it. And then I don't know what, what Candace's is, the Clandus, Clandus would be good, though that then they might call it the Ku Klux Clandus. That would not be. That would be bad. I don't know what a good pun would be for Candace. The canned, uh, I don't know. But for the Creme de la Creme, 
to, to Walsh's point, this did crop up organically. I never sat down, no one, none of you sat down and said, we're going to be, I don't know where it came from. I think it's because some, sometimes when the spirit moves me, I just start speaking in other languages. You know, I, I'll speak in Italian, I'll speak in Latin, and occasionally French. Here's how you know that it wasn't intentional. I'm not French. I don't, I don't, I barely even speak French. It just, I don't know. It came to me. The creme de la creme. And because you're very, very creamy people, you know, you're, you're lovely. You know, Media Matters is going to pull this out now and say Knowles's cult is all white, but it's not, you're not all white. You just happen to be all creamy. So I, I totally agree with Walsh's point in principle. It's just in practice, he's quite wrong. And I, I suspect his, uh, his vitriol about this comes from the fact that he just doesn't speak French. He doesn't know what the word means. Crème de la crème. Vous êtes la crème de la crème. Qu'est-ce qu'on peut dire? Qu'est-ce qu'on peut faire? All right. Sorry. Okay. Can we turn off. Turn off. Now he's showing off by speaking French. No, I don't speak French, okay? I speak American, damn it. So I live in America. And that's the SBG. We are, we are, we're not, we're not elitist. It's not an elitist thing. This is, uh, we're, this is salt of the earth people in the SBG. That's what it is. Uh... I don't even understand. I don't understand the distinction because the distinction makes no sense. There is no distinction between I'm I'm right, but I'm wrong in practice. What is that? Is that this is like uh, what is this? AOC, moral, morally incorrect fact or something like that? What was the thing that she said? Is this what we're getting from uh, from Michael Knowles? No, it's not. This is what I know. Candace claimed the same thing about her uh, her offshoot thing. Brett Cooper does. Brett Cooper has one too. Cooper Trooper. Candace was the candy crushers or something like that. All of them want to claim, oh, I didn't see, this is just, it happened organically. No, it didn't. Because no, your, your little fans, they saw the SPG and they said, oh, we, we want a name too. No. You know what? The best you could do, just to use a 90s analogy, um, uh, to, to go back to the 90s, we are in the SPG, we are, I, I would say, you know, maybe the in sync of uh, the Daily Wire, the, the best you could do is, is be the 98 degrees or the LFO. You know, I'm running out of generic brand uh, boy bands, but you get the point. All right. Uh, Lucas Ward says, the walrus float shows that even after Matt was forced to behead Johnny, you can't keep a good walrus dead. I think that is true. You know, I, I thought about that as well. That was really, maybe that's why the story about the walrus float spoke to me. Uh, the way that it did, and why I became not on the air, but 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 off the air, finding out about it, I became somewhat emotional um, about it because it, it was it was a majestic, a majestic float, um, a great work of art. But then also, I, I saw Johnny, the Walrus reborn, and I knew that it's true that no matter what happens, uh, you think that you've destroyed him, and he will come back even bigger than before. And I think that's. Um, that's really the point. Uh, E.K. Smither says, Matt sounds reasonable regarding the virtue of not having content c- to consume, but it's simplistic. Many use that content to relax in the evening after a day of intense mental work like coding. It's not to edify, quite the contrary. It is to entertain. Well, I think I said when we were talking about the collapse of the, what we're being warned is going to be the impending collapse of the entertainment industry. And you know, it's like, boo-hoo. Uh, no, that's actually could be a very good thing. But that's not me saying that it's good if there are no more movies that exist. Okay, as, a, as an art form, I think movies are very, I have made a movie. So uh, I think that it's a great um, art form. Uh, but, and I made this point in the monologue that 
you know, this, what Hollywood is producing, that is what is collapsing. People are losing, losing interest in it. And I'd like to see it replaced by better art. Um, and that was the point that I was, I was making there. Also, you say that, well, the, the point of entertainment, it's to entertain, not to edify. Um, but I think that this is a false distinction. There's no reason why I can't do both. And when I, when I talk about how, and this is like any content that you consume, any film that you watch, any music that you listen to, any book you read, it should be, in some sense, edifying. Okay? Um, but that doesn't mean that it has to be a hitting you over the head sermon. A lot of that stuff can be the opposite of edifying. Because it to- you, it's, it's boring and it's trite and, you know, it doesn't have any impact at all. No, it just means that any story should have should have something to say. It should have some, you know, it should be grounded in some kind of truth about life, even a, a fiction story. Um, and that's that's the case. That's 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 the case of any any form of art should be that. Um, and finally, Alana says the video about arguing reminded me of something I would be forced to watch if I got into a fight at recess. I think that's exactly right. Yes. Spencer Cox and uh, Jared Polis, the governors of Utah and Illinois, or rather Colorado, respectively, doing a PSA to lecture us about not being mean to each other. I was trying to put my finger on what, what, what exactly is this? Like, where have I seen this kind of thing before? And I think that's, I think that's it. It's like when you get lectured because you got into a fight at recess. I think you're exactly right. If you're hiring, you're probably dealing with economic uncertainty, and now more than ever, it's important to hire the right people faster and more efficiently to keep overall costs down. Thankfully, ZipRecruiter is a hiring partner who is focused on you and your needs. From pricing to technology, everything that ZipRecruiter does is for you and what works best for you. Right now, you can try them for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash Walsh. ZipRecruiter's smart technology identifies the best matches for your job and lets you invite candidates who you really want to apply for your job before other businesses can snag them up. Uh, I love how their pricing is really straightforward. You know what you pay before posting your job so you can stick to your budget with no surprises. Hire the best with the help of a partner who's all about you with ZipRecruiter. Four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within day one. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash Walsh. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash Walsh. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Also, men and women are undeniably different, and not just physically, but also on a much deeper level. And ironically, the more the left tries to erase those differences, the more pronounced the differences actually become. For example, women are generally more nurturing than men. That's a fact. Holding on to these facts and understanding them is essential. And that's at the heart of Dennis Prager's new episode of Prager News Master's Program. In this series, Dennis is sharing 40 years worth of hard-earned wisdom, and he explores all kinds of topics at the same time, like how to be a good person, hurdles to happiness, the case for marriage. But this newest episode is extremely important because the more men and women understand each other, the more they're able to accept and appreciate their unique differences. And uh, it's also a fun episode. You don't want to miss it. So go to dailywireplus.com to become a member and watch PragerU Master's Program today. Now let's get to our daily cancellation. There are many downsides to living in a collapsing civilization. Overall, I find the experience, frankly, unpleasant. It's not something I would recommend, but there are a few small benefits. One, one is that uh, it's never difficult to find fodder for this segment of the show. You know, it can be a bit of a stretch sometimes, honestly, filling out an entire hour, but I never have trouble finding material for the daily cancellation. Content for this segment sprouts out of the ground. It falls out of the sky, grows on trees. We are surrounded by it all the time. This is a, this is a very meager silver lining, I admit, but we have to take what we can get. 
And in our culture, there is always someone next in line presenting my next daily cancellation segment to me, doing my work for me. Today, it's the Wall Street Journal with an article about what it calls the hot new invite divorce parties. The article begins, quote, after Brandy Stellars finalized her divorce, she invited close friends to a soiree in May. She, uh, she mixed signature cocktails, hung a Buy Felicia banner, and handed out fake rose petals to toss in the air. Party decorations included a photo of a pair of penguins torn down the middle. I ripped the penguins in half because penguins are monogamous birds who are supposed to mate for life. She says, well, I'm not your penguin anymore. The newly uncoupled are throwing themselves blowout bashes to mark their liberation from unhappy marriages, almost like reverse bachelorette parties. I wanted to celebrate not a divorce, but a new chapter with people whom I love, who want the best for me, says Stellars, who works at a cloud computing company in Columbus, Ohio. Divorce used to be something to be ashamed of due to societal pressures and stereotypes, says Nicole Sedoma, a divorce lawyer who wrote the book, Please Don't Say You're Sorry, about the topic. But today, people have really decided to nip that societal shame and instead embrace being divorced as another stage of life that some of us experience. By the way, I like the, the bit about penguins because what she's basically saying is that I, we, I am not able to live up to the standard of a penguin. Okay, penguin, that, that, that is a moral standard that I cannot meet. Penguins. Now, how about a, you know, a spider that mates with the, the male spider and then devours it? That's, that's, that's more, that's more where, where she is, I think. But yeah, divorce is just another stage of life, uh, says the divorce lawyer. Kind of like um, you know, totaling your car at the bottom of a ravine. It's just another stage of driving home from work. Burning down your house is just another stage of building it. Choking to death on a chicken bone is just another stage of eating dinner. That's what we're hearing from the divorce lawyer, who, of course has absolutely no financial motive to promote and normalize divorce. This is certainly an unbiased observer whose insights we can trust. Definitely. Reading on, quote, On Etsy and Amazon, brands sell splits, Splitsville swag, including end-of-an-error sashes, thank-you-next, uh, rose-gold foil balloons, and I-do-I-did-I'm-done t-shirts. On Pinterest, the online platform for sharing creative ideas, search trends show that people are gaining a new perspective on divorce, says Swatsti. Uh, Sarna, Global Director of Data Insights at Pinterest. Pinterest searches for divorce party games surged 80% and searches for divorce cakes rose 50% in June 2022 from a year earlier. There were also jumps in searches for diverse, divorce party decorating ideas, 35%, and for divorce gifts, 30%, according to Pinterest. It was just this feeling of, I'm not ashamed of this, says Nadine Adamson, a real estate broker in Manhattan and Brooklyn who had a divorce party. I think being married for more than 10 years in New York I was married for 12, is a huge success. Well, we can't even talk about lowering the bar anymore because at this point it's buried under the ground. You barely have to lift your feet to get over it. You can crawl and get over the bar at this point. Being married for 12 years and then divorcing is a success, she says. A huge success. This is like saying that a man is a, is a hugely successful swimmer if he makes it a quarter of the way across the pool and then drowns and dies. I can imagine Nadine watching the guy sink below the surface, because of course she wouldn't try to help him, and declaring, wow, he's just like Michael Phelps. What a great swimmer. Continuing, quote, Adamson had friends from Los Angeles fly to New York, and they booked the hotel suite where she had stayed when she got married. It felt like closure in a really beautiful way to be in the same hotel with the same view, she says. The four of them burned sage in the suite to rid it of, rid it of negative vibes, filled the place with balloons, dined out, and then had a sleepover. Adamson also continues to a post on Instagram with the hashtag 
divorce party, not because she keeps throwing them, but as a way to highlight her new life, such as upgrading her brownstone with a cozy wood-burning fireplace. I guess divorce parties are a thing, a Reddit user wrote a few months ago in a post that drew nearly 4,000 comments. The poster included a photo of an invitation from a divorcing couple that was throwing a joint party. Plus ones are welcome. Ours will be there, it said. Now you get the idea. But uh, eventually the article ends with this anecdote, quote, travel blogger Maja Proskult says that her divorce process done without lawyers was lengthy enough that by the time the paperwork was done, much of her grief had settled and she was ready for a party. Her sister supplied a crown and a finally divorced sash. The group went out dancing where the club's DJ called out, let's have it for Maja's divorce party. That was a top, that was a top life moment for me, she says. A top life moment. Well then, Maja, um, you have lived an incredibly pathetic life. And that is the case for all of these divorce partiers, nearly all of whom, you may have noticed, are women. The fact that the divorce party phenomenon is almost entirely driven by women is yet more evidence that the divorce epidemic itself is mostly driven by women. Women are more likely to initiate divorce, much more likely to throw themselves a party celebrating the betrayal of their vows. And this is not the point that we're going to focus on today, but it is worth noting. You know, there's a lot of discussion, including this week, about what's wrong with men in our culture. But this is more evidence that women have some very serious problems of their own, to put it mildly. Now, putting that aside, um, the article notes that there used to be a lots of shame and stigma surrounding divorce. And these parties are meant to be, in part, uh, a corrective to that, a way of destigmatizing what had been stigmatized. You'll notice that our society is obsessed with destigmatizing. But the problem is that we, we take away the stigma without asking why the stigma was there in the first place. Divorce was treated as an embarrassing and shameful thing in the past because it is embarrassing and shameful. You are breaking a promise. It is deranged to actively celebrate the breaking of a promise, no matter what the promise was. You know, we've all broken promises in our lives. This is a human foible. But it's quite another thing to applaud the breaking of a promise, to celebrate it, as a somehow enriching and life-affirming choice. And this is not just any promise. This is a solemn vow made to someone you claim to love, a vow that you built a whole life around. And now you're tearing that life into pieces and leaving lots of collateral damage, including oftentimes your children, in its wake. It's not just inappropriate to celebrate this. It is psychotic. Yes, the divorce may start a new chapter in your life, uh, you know, just like if you get into a, a drunk driving accident and wind up in jail for manslaughter, that'll also start a new chapter in your life. But just because it's new doesn't mean it's good. And this is not exactly a profound insight, but it comes as news to many in our culture. Not all new things are good, okay? In fact, I'm not even sure that new chapter is the right way of looking at this. Because when you abandon your marriage and your family... It's less that you're adding a new chapter to your book, and it's more that you're giving up on the book. You know, you began writing the story when you met your spouse, and you wrote uh, a, a story together. It's a saga full of joy and hardship and love and sacrifice. Divorce is not the next chapter in that book, but it's the abrupt and unceremonious and unsatisfying and anticlimactic end to the great novel that you had been composing together. Now you start a whole new book. But the thing is that you're going to so often find that the new one is at best a pale imitation of the one you gave up on, the one you ruined by ending too early. Divorce is not anything to celebrate. It's something to lament. So if you have a ceremony to commemorate your divorce, 
It should be less like a bachelorette party and more like a wake with an open casket displaying your broken promise and your broken family. A somber occasion of mourning. That would at least be honest. Still kind of weird, though. And that is why divorce parties are today canceled. And that'll do it for the show today. Talk to you tomorrow. Have a great day. Godspeed.